so I grew up going to church um, regularly as a kid, and there were some things um, as a kid I didn't really like about going to church. Uh, but one thing I did like was the holiday season, right? Uh, because after Thanksgiving, you always knew, or at least I always knew, when I came to church the Sunday after Thanksgiving, it would be decorated, there was a group of people that would gather sometime during that week, and they would hang up all sorts of wreaths and garlands, and there would be red bows on everything. Um, and then uh, in our church, there would be a huge Christmas tree in the choir loft. We had this choir loft, and I don't know where they got this tree from, but it was really big, and they would put this huge Christmas tree there, and it would be decorated with all sorts of ornaments, and there would be um, lights and candles up everywhere. Um, and then, of course, uh, for the whole month of December, we would sing lots of Christmas carols and songs and hymns, and that was always fun. Um, and then there were certain um, or special Christmas events. There were certain services we did, candlelight services, and, and then there was Christmas parties you went to and Sunday school parties. And we even did this thing called a Christmas cantata. Anybody know what a cantata is? right? It's like a singing choir performance kind of thing. Um, it's like a play, but not really because there's no actors. So, but it was one of those things um, that we did some years. Um, and then there was always a Christmas sermon series, and I didn't always love the sermons as a kid growing up, but I liked those because during the month of December, there would be this sermon series about uh, Christmas. Um, and then we also did this thing called Advent, and I, I hadn't really heard of this much, but we had this um, Advent wreath um, and it was a wreath with four uh, candles around it, and then there was a big candle in the middle. Um, and what I learned was, we'll light a candle every single Sunday leading up to Christmas. And so Advent was like the countdown to Christmas. And, uh, and, and all of those things sort of put together, I liked Christmas at church growing up. And, and I realized, and I don't, if, if you grew up going to church, maybe your experience was similar. Um, but I realized as I was thinking about this, that many of the things that we did at church just paralleled the same things that we did at home. Because after Thanksgiving, everyone decorates the house, right? You get out the decorations and you put garland or greenery or sort of lights and candles and things up. Um, at some point, usually after Thanksgiving, maybe it's the day after, maybe it's the next weekend, you go get a Christmas tree, right? And you bring that home and you set that up in your house, um, and there's Christmas music that's always playing, and you love that, right? Everyone loves Christmas music to listen to that all throughout uh, Christmas. And, um, and you go to parties, right? Everybody goes to, well, there's all kinds of Christmas events and Christmas parties, and you sing Christmas songs at those uh, Christmas events. Um, and even Advent has become popular um, because now we don't just have Advent wreaths, but there's little calendars, right? There's a little calendars you can buy at the store, and they have little chocolates inside, and you're counting down the days to Christmas. That's what Advent basically is. And whether it's at church or home, it seems like our whole culture has really embraced this holiday and Christmas season. And it's a great season. There's joy in the air there's parties, there's fun, there's buying gifts, right, for people. We do a lot of gift buying. Um, if you're a kid, you don't really care about buying gifts for anyone. You're thinking about the gifts you're going to get on Christmas Eve or on Christmas morning. And it's not just December either, right? The whole season starts 
with Halloween, right? That's when things kick off because you dress up at Halloween and you go out and you get to put on a costume and there's usually Halloween parties and you get all kinds of candy and then that bleeds into Thanksgiving and there's turkey and there's football and there's pumpkin pie and pumpkin spice lattes and pumpkin Cheerios and everything, right? And then that bleeds into the whole December and Christmas season and it's like this um, two or three month long season of lots of fun and food and celebrations and food and family and food, right? And there's food throughout the whole thing. Lots of food and lots of sweet food. And I have a sweet tooth, so I love this season. This is my Super Bowl, <laughs> right? So there's a lot to love about this season. But in recent years, I've had this gnawing feeling that maybe we're missing something. That there's just something missing during the holidays with the whole way that we approach them. And uh, part of it is I've, I've realized um, not everyone loves Christmas or the holiday season. It's not easy for everybody. Some people didn't come from great families the way I did or have the memories associated with the holidays that I had. In fact, the holidays can be very hollow for some people. They can be difficult. Maybe you're one of those people where everyone else around you is excited and it's all about joy and happiness, but that's not really what it is for you. And there's a disconnect there. But I don't know if that's it. I don't know if, if, that's, if there's something wrapped up in that that... that that we're missing. Um, I just don't know if in, in all the gifts and in all the food and in all the celebrating, what is it that we're missing? And I, I don't know that it's just restraint, right? I mean, we need that. We could, we could all use, I could use a little more restraint during the holiday season, but I feel like there's something else. Almost as if maybe we took a wrong turn somewhere, and now the entire way we approach this season, there's something absent from it. There's something we've lost. And the more I've thought about it, and the more I've asked questions about this, I've come to the conclusion that, yeah, I think there is something we're missing. So I want to share with you a couple of observations that speak to what we're missing. And the first is this. First, we've sentimentalized Christmas. We sentimentalize it. And that just means we've taken something that's raw and has edges, and we've wrapped it up with nostalgic feelings, tender emotions, and warm sentiments that are romantic and idealized. So Christmas has become like a warm sugar cookie that you just took out of the oven, and now you've drizzled with you know, icing and red and green sprinkles. Christmas is one of those seasons where um, the, the songs sort of get us in the mood, and um, we listened to all sorts of songs growing up. My dad liked country music. Who likes country music? Oh, wow. All right. Uh, so my dad liked country music, so we always put on like country Christmas songs growing up, and my favorite was a song called Tender Tennessee Christmas. Not the Amy Grant version, the Alabama version. Yes, and, and here's how it went. Tender, 
Do you have a f- Anybody know that song? Right? It just brings back all sorts of memories. And there's this sentimental, warm and cozy and snuggle up in a fleece blanket on the couch sort of idea of Christmas. And I love that. I love it. But here's what we forget. We forget that at the heart of Christmas is the story of a teenage girl with an illegitimate child. And the child is born in an animal pen where there's disease and poop everywhere and all sorts of, I mean, it's just, and it's cold and nobody cares. The only people that care are some foreigners and some sheep herders. And they were the social outcasts of that day. And after the baby's born, word comes in that the authorities are after her and they're going to chase after her. And if they find her, they're going to kill her and her family. You see, if that story was told today, it would be the story of a pregnant teenager from Honduras who doesn't have any papers, who doesn't have any family, who's homeless with no place to go, who ends up in a homeless shelter giving birth there with a bunch of drunk alcoholics cheering her on. And then word that ICE is on their way. And that if they catch her, she'll be deported. You see, that's not a sentimental story. That's a heartbreaking story. And we forget that because we've sentimentalized Christmas. We've, we miss its rawness and its rough edges. But there's actually a second observation I have, and it's where we're going to camp out a little bit more for a while. <clears throat> And it's this, Christmas has swallowed up Advent. It means our sentimentalized, romantic version of Christmas has basically swallowed up the ideas of Advent so that Advent now serves the purposes of Christmas. Advent, whatever it is, has all the same sentimental and romantic feelings associated, that Christmas, associated with it that Christmas does. Because, after all, right, Advent's just a countdown to Christmas. Advent is the pre-Christmas celebration before Christmas. Advent is like the happy hour before the party, right? And you might be asking, well, isn't that the way Advent is supposed to be? No. Actually, it's not at least not historically. So let me give you a little bit of background on where the ideas of Christmas and Advent even come from. For starters, uh, Christmas and Advent are holidays that are not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. So obviously the, the events that they're about and the themes that they're based on are from Scripture, but the actual holidays are not. There's no indication whatsoever that the earliest Christians celebrated Advent or Christmas. And that doesn't mean that we shouldn't do them. It just means there's no passage in the Bible that we can go to and read that tells us what to do or how to celebrate Advent or Christmas. What we do know is that the celebration of Christmas began sometime in about the mid-fourth century, or at least that's when it's first documented. 
Um, churches in the uh, western part of the Roman Empire, so in the ancient days the Roman Empire was really big, the western part would be what we think of now as Italy and Rome and France and Europe. Churches in the western part of the empire picked December 25th to be the day that they would celebrate Jesus' birth, and there's debates about why they picked that actual day. It's almost certainly not the day that Jesus was born. Nobody actually knows that, but churches in the eastern part of the empire, so that would be uh, Palestine, uh, modern-day Turkey, and Asia, those parts, they actually picked January um, 5th as the day, or January 6th as the day uh, that they would celebrate, Um, and they would later move it to December 25th as well, Um, but all across the empire, this was originally known as the Feast of the Nativity, because this was the time that they celebrated Jesus' birth. But we also know that in about this same time period, sometime in roughly the 3rd or 4th century, Christians across the empire also observed a season of fasting and repentance. And it always took place in the early winter. In the eastern part of the empire, it was for 40 days uh, specifically. And in fact, in Eastern Orthodox churches, they do that today, what we now call Advent for them. And churches right here in Denver will start on November the 15th this week. And it's a period of 40 days of fasting and reflection and repentance before the Feast of Nativity. In the Western part of the empire, there are also indications that this, this is a long season of, of six or seven weeks. In fact, we have early records from France that what we call Advent now began on November 11th. That would be tomorrow, every single year. So it was much longer than the Advent that we celebrate now. It was six or seven weeks. But here's the most important part of it. Followers of Jesus during the season in both the east and the western parts of the empire observed what we call Advent, but it wasn't about preparing for Christ's birth. The focus of Advent was on the hope of Jesus' second coming. The word Advent in Latin, which became the main language spoken, the word Advent just means coming. It means the coming of of Jesus. And the idea during this season was that during the days of darkening winter, right, when the days are getting shorter and the nights are getting longer and each night seems to get darker and darker, and also during this time period it seemed like life in the Roman Empire was getting darker. It was certainly getting more violent. Um, Barbarians from the north and Germany were beginning to attack the fringes of the empire. And in 410 AD, they would actually surround the city of Rome and sack the city of Rome. And the Roman Empire would be no more. And in fact, it's this time period that historians now look back and say, this is the beginning of what we call the Dark Ages. So as life is getting darker and as the days are getting darker Followers of Jesus would take about seven weeks, a time where they would reflect on the darkness of their world and the darkness of their lives, and they would put their hope in the light of Jesus and in the light that God shines into our world and the hope that he will one day come back and make everything right and make everything new again. 
In fact, we've even got records of sermons preached during this time. The Bishop of Rome preached a whole sermon series. <laughs> it was an Advent sermon series in the 5th century, and we have records and transcripts of everything he preached. And he talks about repentance and fasting and all sorts of things, and not once does he ever mention the birth of Jesus. Advent was about the future and our future hope and what God would do. Now, Within a few hundred years, by about the 7th century, um, Christian leaders in the western part of the empire, and that's where most of us in America inherit our tradition from, um, Christian leaders at that time developed a whole cycle that every year they would go through a cycle of seasons and important holidays they would celebrate, and they decided to make Advent the very beginning of that cycle, and they shortened it from what used to be six or seven weeks uh, to four weeks. And it became a little bit more closely associated with Christmas because naturally the two are right next to each other. Advent took place in winter right before Christmas happened. And if you're hoping and waiting and longing for God to come and make all things new and you're trusting that he's going to do that, you're sort of banking on the idea that he did that one time. That when things were dark and people were looking for a Messiah and a Savior, he sent Jesus into this world. And if he did it once, he'll do it again. So from about the 7th century to about the 19th century, that's the way Advent was celebrated. But it's in the mid-19th century that all of our modern customs of Christmas came into being. That's when people in Europe and in America began to put up Christmas trees with decorations and candles and lights. That was new. That wasn't something that they had done before. That was a new thing. That's when people started giving gifts to one another and, and opening their gifts on Christmas Eve or on Christmas morning. People didn't do that all throughout history. That's something that developed in the 19th century. That's when the image of Santa Claus was born, right? It was actually based on St. Nicholas, which is an old idea, but this new image of Santa Claus with his reindeer and sleigh, and he gives out all of these gifts, that's when it became popular. And... That's when the Advent wreath and the Advent calendar were invented. So it was about the middle of uh, the 19th century that the Advent wreath was invented, and it was the early 20th century that the Advent calendar was invented. Somebody said, let's put together a calendar where there's little windows and you open them and it counts down the days until Christmas starts. Or, or let's put together a wreath and we'll put four candles around it and we'll light one every single Sunday for the four Sundays of Advent and that will show us that we're getting closer and closer to Christmas. And in fact, each of the Sundays of Advent and each of the candles was given a Christmas theme to go along with it. Love, joy, peace, and hope. Now, none of these developments are bad. None of these things are wrong. In fact, we've done Advent this way at our church for many years. We've had a, a, an Advent wreath up here. We've done Advent for four weeks like most churches uh, today do. Um, we give our kids Advent calendars at home. We always go to Trader Joe's because that's the best place to get them, and you can buy the little calendars there, and uh, we'll probably do it again to this year. We do an Advent um, candles at home. We do Advent calendars at home. I think dad should get an Advent calendar. That's a new thing that we need to add to the custom, right? Um, we're going to put up lights. We're going to decorate a tree. We're going to do all those things, and we're going to put tender Tennessee Christmas on while we're doing it. So all that stuff is okay. But what if there's something 
about the way early followers of Jesus engaged this season of Advent that we've lost. Something that was unique and meaningful to them that could be unique and meaningful to us. What if the creep of Christmas and the holiday season and all the sentimentality that goes with it has deprived us of an opportunity to engage some really important ideas in Advent that we don't typically engage any other time of the year. So what if we dialed back a little bit of the pre-Christmas celebration this year, and what if we dialed up some ancient Advent mojo? (laughs) I couldn't think of any other word that captured what we need to do. So I want to try that this year. Um, And one of the ways I want us to think about this is to actually go to some words that the Apostle Paul wrote. So Apostle Paul um, was a guy uh, that if, again, you didn't grow up in church and you don't know much about him except he's one of those guys from the Bible, um, he was one of the earliest followers of Jesus. And in about 50 or 60 AD, he began to travel all around the Mediterranean. And he basically did two things as he traveled around. He just told people about Jesus and he planted new churches. I'm just going to tell people about the hope I have in Jesus and I'm going to help new communities of faith get started. And one of those was started in Ephesus. And uh, on one occasion, he wrote a letter to his friends at Ephesus. We call it Ephesians now. It's a book in the New Testament. It was just a letter that Paul wrote. And near the end of the letter, look at what Paul said to his friends. He said, finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. So um, just some uh, quick context. Paul is writing at a time when Christians are a small minority of the population. In fact, to be a Christian at that time was weird. It, you were sort of an outcast. Um, you were seen as being backwards. You were a part of this strange cult that nobody knew much about. Um, and it was during this time that the Roman authorities began to persecute Christians. Um, Jewish authorities had actually been persecuting Christians for a number of years because they were trying to stamp out this new movement. Um, but now the Romans were taking notice. In fact, Paul was almost certainly writing this from prison. He had been beaten up. He had been thrown into prison in Rome um, because they were trying to stamp out this new movement. In fact, the emperor at this time was a guy named Nero, and he hated Christians. In fact, it was just a couple of years after this letter was written that Nero decided to incite widespread violence against Christians across the entire empire, and then he personally gave the order to have Paul beheaded. And he was. So Paul is writing a few years before that to his friends in Ephesus, and he knows that they're beginning to probably face some of the same hardships that he's facing for his faith. And so he says basically here, just be strong in the Lord, right? Be strong. Trust in God's power. Defend yourself by putting on God's armor, you know, whatever that is, Paul, Um, so you can stand against the devil's schemes. And I imagine as those people in Ephesus are reading this letter for the first time, what they might be thinking is, wait a second, Paul, 
It's not the devil that we're worried about, whoever he is or whatever he's like. It's the people we're worried about. It's Roman soldiers that we're worried about. It's the Jewish leaders that we're worried about. They're the ones who hate us. It's the authorities and the people in power that we're worried about. They're the ones making life difficult for us. They're the ones that are closing down our businesses and our shops. They're the ones who won't let us meet. They're the ones that are forcing us to celebrate the Roman holidays. They're the ones forcing us to honor and respect the Roman gods. They're the ones forcing us to swear our allegiance to the Roman emperor. It's the people in power. That's who we're worried about. And Paul probably knows that this is what they'll be thinking, and he wants to make sure they really understand what's going on. And so look at what he says next. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. Wow, you got a little dark there, Paul. Like, that's serious. That's not the answer they were expecting. And Paul is basically saying, yeah, this is serious. Your enemy is not people with flesh and blood. Your enemy is not people. People are not your enemy. The Roman soldiers, the Jewish leaders, the authorities, those are not your enemy. They need Jesus just like you do. They're not your enemy. No, our struggle, it's not against flesh and blood. It's not against people. It's against something way more sinister, way more hidden, way more unseen, way more powerful, and way more formidable. It's against, and he gives them these four terms, it's against rulers and authorities, powers of this dark world, and spiritual forces of evil and heavenly places. Now, these terms are interesting. The first two terms, rulers and authorities, were very common terms during that day, and uh, they often did refer to human leaders, people who were rulers, or principalities is another uh, uh, translation of this word. Um, So people in places of authority, so that would be uh, judges, magistrates, soldiers, governors, tax collectors, anyone representing the state or anyone with official power, but, but Paul had just made clear he's not talking about people in power. I'm not talking about flesh and blood rulers and authorities. I'm talking about other kinds of rulers, hidden rulers, unseen authorities. And to make that clear, he gives these second two terms, the third and fourth, the powers of the dark world, this dark world, spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places or heavenly realms. Now, this third term, I want to talk about it just for a second, powers of this dark world, because the word that's translated powers is a Greek word that's interesting. It's a combination of two words. It's literally the word ruler, world and ruler. So it could be literally translated the world rulers of this darkness or the rulers over this dark world. And it's the only time that Paul uses this in the entire New Testament, and it's the first time that this Greek word is ever used in any ancient Greek literature. It's used by others after Paul, but this is the first time we see it. Now, that doesn't mean Paul made it up himself, but it means it's a really unique word, and he's trying to let the people know there are things that are ruling this entire world. There are forces 
that are ruling over and keeping us, keeping people in darkness. And the Bible in other places uses all kinds of other imagery to describe these forces. Um, Sometimes these dark forces are portrayed as a pack of wolves waiting to devour unsuspecting sheep. Sometimes it's portrayed as a lion waiting to pounce. The book of Revelation has all kinds of images of beasts and dragons. And then the most common term for these dark forces is the word demon. And um, when I was growing up, I read a book called This Present Darkness. Did anyone read this book? Who read this book? All right. All the Gen X are Christians. <laughs> All right. Um, it, was the, it was a work of fiction, and uh, it was based on these verses I just read, and it creatively portrayed this idea that there are actual demons, and these demons actually have um, like horns and swords and names, and they're around every corner, and they're waiting to like destroy us, and, and it was scary and it was good, and it was a compelling book, right, as a kid. But as I got older, um, I think I did what all of us probably did. I took all the scary parts of the Bible about demons and dragons and beasts and the whole book of Revelation, and I just threw it away, right? I mean, I didn't literally throw it away. That would be bad. Uh, but I just took it, and I didn't read it anymore, and I skipped over it because, right, I'm a smart guy, and it's, I get it that people way back then used to believe in those kind of superstitious things, but none of us believe in those kind of things now. Those things aren't real. There's not demons walking around and all that. But now I'm rethinking, tossing all of that out. I'm realizing I think Paul was right. There's a lot of darkness in our world. And maybe it's not these literal demons with horns and pitchforks and names and all those kind of things, but, but there are forces, dark forces that can rule over our lives. There are forces that can keep us from knowing God's light and God's love and God's truth and His grace. There are forces that can keep us from dark, in, dark, in darkness. There's there's forces that can keep God's kingdom and God's reign in our world from being an actual reality. And so the question is, what are those forces, those powers of this dark world? And that's the question we're going to answer for the rest of Advent this year. So we're going to try to do something different, and I hope you'll join this experiment. And here's what it's going to look like. Instead of four Sundays of Advent, we're going to follow the older tradition and observe Advent from se- for seven Sundays. So beginning today and going through December 22nd, which is the Sunday right before Christmas. Um, we're going to engage Advent the way the earliest Christians engaged Advent. So we'll explore what is it that makes our world so dark And how is it that we can long for God to do something about it, for him to come and intervene? Which means we're not going to make Advent about Christmas this year. So naturally, the idea of putting our hope in a God who will come and rescue and deliver us um, is parallel to the story of the people of Israel waiting for a Messiah who will come and deliver them. So, So Christmas is a fitting end to Advent, just like Easter is a fitting into Lent. 
but you don't celebrate Easter all throughout Lent. And so we're not going to focus on the destination, we're going to focus on the journey. So on Sundays, here's what we're going to do for each message, and Emily and I are going to preach through this series together. We're going to look at a specific force that's ruling over our world and often keeping our world in darkness, and we'll explore how do we have strength in that struggle? What are some practical things that we can do? And sometimes there's not practical things we can do. Sometimes we just call out to God in the darkness, and we ask for His grace and His mercy, and we ask Him to come and invade this world in whatever way He chooses to do. We're going to light candles uh, during Advent. We don't have a wreath this year, but we have seven candles up here and an eighth candle that we'll light on Christmas Eve that will begin our Christmas celebrations. We're also going to have artwork out in the hallway. Um, Ellie Shen is a member of our community. She's a local artist, and she's going to paint a painting every single week to go along with the thing that we're talking about. And so I hope as you go out today, you'll sort of linger in the hallway because the painting that she painted for this week really connects with some of the things that Paul was talking about, and I hope you'll take a look at that. Here's something else we're going to do a little different. We're going to scale back the Christmas songs during Advent. We love Christmas songs. We love Christmas carols. We're going to sing a lot of them on Christmas Eve, okay? So I was talking to Brian about this a few, um, a couple of months ago, and he was like, yeah, let's just focus on Advent songs, and then all the songs that we were going to sing during the month of December, we'll just sing them all on Christmas Eve for like four hours straight. Um, So I hope you'll be at the Christmas Eve service. Um, It won't be that long, but we're going to sing a lot of Christmas songs then, because the ancient church, I don't know if you knew this, they actually celebrate Christmas for 12 days. The 12 days begins on December the 25th, and it goes for 12 days. That's where the song, the 12 days of Christmas, actually comes from, but they sang those Christmas songs, and they engaged those Christmas things for 12 days, but it begins on December the 25th. So during the season of Advent, we're going to lean into some Advent songs. And some Advent hymns. Some of them might be new. Some of them you might recognize. We're also going to do a special service on, uh, on December the 18th. And it's going to be called The Longest Night. It's going to be a special service uh, for anyone who's grieving. Anyone who's experienced loss this past year. Anyone who's going through a tough time. And everyone else around you is feeling really Christmassy. And you're not. <clears throat> So I hope you'll put that on your calendar. And then finally, Advent isn't just about uh, Sundays or services. We want you to engage Advent during the week. And so we put together some devotions for you to do for the next seven weeks. We kept them simple. We're just going to encourage you to do them maybe three times a week. Um, You can do them at the dinner table. If you're part of a family, we've made them really accessible. They're just 10 or 15 minutes of saying a prayer, um, reading a passage of Scripture, talking about it briefly, And then listening to a song together um, as a family. Um, And so you can do that for three nights a week all throughout Advent. And then we even put together some devotions you can do for the 12 days of Christmas. Um, And they include some music. So we put together a couple of Spotify playlists. Um, One for Advent that you can listen to and you can do it during those devotions. But you can also engage that any other time you listen to music. And then for Christmas, we put together a Christmas playlist. And we know if anyone has listened to the Christmas playlist before December 24th. So don't even try it. 
kidding, kidding. So that's the plan. Uh, I feel like I just handed out a syllabus. So are there any questions? No, seriously, like, are there any questions? Yeah, Josh. Uh, yeah, we're going to hand out devotions. So we'll give you a paper copy on your way out, and then everything is going to be online at newdenver.org slash advent. Uh, go to Spotify and search for NDC Songs for Advent and NDC Songs for Christmas, or at newdenver.org, there'll be links directly to those playlists. All right, so here's the deal. Oh, yeah. Uh, like in elementary? Um, ask Emily afterwards. <laughs> They're engaging themes, but probably not tracking exactly what we're going to do. Um, yeah. So here's the deal. We want you to try this this year. Um, it's okay if you still have an Advent wreath. It's okay. Um, it's okay if you listen to Christmas music while you're setting up your decorations. Um, it's okay if you do all that stuff, but I hope you'll maybe this year at least pause and think about it a little bit more. I hope you'll enter the season of Advent and try to engage it more intentionally than maybe any of us have done in the past. And as the news gets more discouraging in our nation, and as the days of winter get darker outside, I hope we can wait and watch and reflect and hope together as a community of faith.